Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is Bruce Kelly from Investment News talking to you. Jeff Benjamin is busy with other responsibilities and duties and tasks this week. So you just got me flying solo from the Investment News side, but we uh, are not solo, of course, uh, in, in total, because we have with us a very interesting person in the wider financial advice industry. Rich Steinmeier is joining us from LPL. How are you today, Rich? Doing great, Bruce. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It's always fun to chat with you, Rich. Let me see if I got your title right here, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, If there's any ellipses or pauses or whatever I should add. (laughs) LPL Financial uh, Managing Director and Divisional President of Business Development. Yeah, sounds good. One of the things that you're in charge of, really, or oversee is recruiting, bringing in new advisors, and consulting with building out the business for existing advisors. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I'm also um, responsible for corporate strategy, so I'm able to give a little bit of an arc towards where we're driving the firm. I've always, I have a long history of covering LPL. I've covered it for 22 years. It might be, for better or worse, the company perhaps I know best <laughs> or I've written the most about over the years. As I've often said to put to people, I've put food on my table and uh, shoes on my kids' feet <laughs> over the years because of LPL. <laughs> right? It was private. It was the biggest independent broker-dealer. It was the first really to be bought out by private equity, right, back in 2005. From Todd Robinson, then it went public in 2010, I believe. Yep. No, November right. 2010, the stock was at 30 bucks back then. And IPO'd at it was at 250 or something today. I think you're in the area code. You know, it's bought broker dealers. It's you know integrated broker dealers. It's really what I've called the bellwether uh, for the independent brokerage business, and it's now becoming more of an RIA and an RIA custodian. But really, you know, when you talk to, you go to a, a, a conference of independent brokerage firms, independent contractor brokerage firms, half the people there at one time worked for LPL. <laughs> like everybody in the business worked. And then on the other side, conversely, on the, on the wealth management or wirehouse side, half the people you meet worked at Merrill Lynch. And you, as a way to segue into your background a little bit, have had the distinction of working for both. I sure did. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and LPL Financial. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in the brokerage industry? Because for an independent broker-dealer guy, you have a, a long history of working at wirehouses as well. Yeah, it's actually interesting, Bruce. You know, I am a recovering management consultant who <laughs> came You work at McKinsey? I worked at McKinsey twice. Oh, good yeah. Lord. <laughs> yeah. Twice. And so you left and then they sucked you back in, huh? Glutton for punishment, I think, is how I would represent myself. Um, and actually, interestingly, both times that I worked there, I didn't do much work in financial services. I did a little bit, but I largely did automotive and assembly work. So I worked on factories and lean engineering huh. or lean optimizations. And, I don't think I knew that about you, Rich. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and had aspired for a long time um, to own car dealerships. And I did not do that either, though huh. I got close. 
about when uh, was that? What year or so? Or, or I worked at McKinsey ninety six to ninety eight, and then two thousand and two to two thousand and six. So were you right out of college then? Right out of college, I went to McKinsey Cleveland office uh, because. There was no Detroit office, and I wanted to serve automotive, uh, and so the automotive practice was out of Cleveland. So I am a big-time Cleveland sports fan. Huh. Are you a car nut, too? I used to be, but car nut in a different way than you would think. Car nuts um, often know how, are mechanically engineered and know right. how things work and talk about carburetors and They're fuel really injectors. They love it. Yeah, I'm into, I used to be into the business model, more about the model of how the automotive um, uh, 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 industry drove the U.S. economy and how we could compete globally. Huh. I just was a kid who was very altruistic, came up in the 70s and 80s thinking about how those great firms for General Motors and Chrysler could compete at the time with the Japanese auto manufacturers. So when also, they weren't competing. Right. I actually took Japanese in college. Um, that was, I, I had a whole life orientation towards being in the automotive segment and space, but, huh. uh, all for not because I got a call in 2006 about coming to join Merrill Lynch to launch what ultimately became Merrill Edge. And so interestingly, Andy Saperstein, who may be a known name to sure, folks here who at Morgan Stanley runs a wealth business, actually Andy hired me, um, as he was running what was ultimately going to be a launch to the mass affluent segment for Merrill. Um, and so I joined to work for Andy um, to launch that business, which did not ultimately get launched uh, until after the Bank America acquisition and became Merrill Edge. Which is now hugely successful. It's a great business. I mean, Merrill Edge is a great business. and Right. In terms of just pulling in assets for Bank of America, Merrill yeah. Edge, I mean, it's, a, it's an asset vacuum. Yeah. And so look, there, look, there's a, there are really strong models in the marketplace um, where there are franchises that are put together. And I would call Merrill uh, Bank America a good example of that, where you've put together, you know, Countrywide and Merrill Lynch and MBNA and the Bank America retail footprint. And you're a cross-selling machine. It emulates, you know, Fidelity similarly right. on the 401k side and then Wells as well. And so you put those together and I'd say, yeah, it's an, it's an asset magnet because I think there's a lot of cross-sell that goes on inside of Merrill and Merrill Edge. Um, and I got to be part of the development of that Merrill Edge team. Um, and we had a lot of fun doing it. There's a really a lot of talented people. I left there. Um, and we can get into this, but if I'm trying to get you brief. Um, and went to UBS and was there for six or so years after spending six or so years at Bank America slash Merrill Lynch. But my orientation always was towards financial advisors um, around serving them and treating them as clients and recognizing that financial advisors are the straw that stirs the drink. Um, and I really wanted to be at a firm that philosophically believed that. And I can tell you, um, in all capital letters, I have ended up at a firm that is advisor-centric, committed to advisors, um, recognizes that we come to work every single day to serve our advisors, who we call our clients, um, in support of growing their businesses. Um, and so um, along with that, we serve um, financial institutions and enterprises who use advisors as well and um, to deliver advice. But we are, um, for me, I have found my home. I have found my calling because I, I couldn't be at a more client-centric firm. And, um, and I think that's what's you know, helped. And I'm, hopefully we'll get into some of this, driven some of the success that we've had at the firm. But joined LPL in 2018. 2018, right. So fascinating. McKinsey, uh, auto manufacturing, then you come to the attention of, of Merrill Lynch. 
and James Gorman was there at the time, I guess. Gorman had left. Gorman had just left. He's an ex-McKinsey guy over to UBS, over to, over to LPL in 2018. What is it about financial, what, what is it that makes sense to you or clicks for you that you want to work with financial advisors and kind of, you know, dedicate your guy. It sounds like you could do anything basically you know, in professional life. What is it about financial advice that clicks for you? Look, I grew up, I grew up, that, let's call it kind of lower middle class, um, working class, you know, um, for sure. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of financial decisions that get made by individuals that they're ill-prepared to make those decisions, right? They are ill-prepared in many instances to make very difficult decisions that actually can cast the die on the course of, you know, whether their kids can affordably go to college, like how they think about actually having vacations, right? When I was a kid, my mom saved for four years for us to go to Disney World, right? Like those are big decisions and and help is needed in those decisions. And I just see the value that financial advisors, obviously that started for me with that kind of mass affluence space that I had grown up in. But you can see the value that financial advisors bring to help families achieve their financial goals. And I know that it sounds like this idealistic approach, Bruce, but it, it is authentically something that is that drives me. And then beyond that, if I go to what 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 I like about the industry is in spite of what anybody wants to position, and I think some firms position otherwise, these financial advisors hang their own shingles. They put their own businesses out there. They take the risks. Um, they are entrepreneurs who are innovating at a local level to serve clients and to, you know, and it's just, it's intoxicating to me. I just love it. I spent, you know, last night I was spent six hours with a good friend who's a, one of our clients um, yesterday afternoon with uh, at his office and then um, at dinner. And just to hear his stories of how he's trying to serve his clients better and, and what we can do to help him serve his clients better, you know, it's very directed for us. We help small business owners and, 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 and large enterprises help people achieve their life's goals. It's, it's, it's noble, but in addition to that, there's a lot of room for the evolution of the model and ways to be yes, supportive. Yes, certainly is. So yeah. how do you land on LPL, Rich? I would say that there are firms in the marketplace who have decisioned that they're going to be competitive with advisors. There are firms that have decided that they are going to bind in the optionality for how advisors do their business. And I think for me, as I'd been in the space for, you know, maybe 12 to 15 years, I came to this conclusion that I wanted to be at a place that actually revered financial advisors. And I, I sought out the opportunity to say, the advisor knows best. The advisor knows how they want to run their business best. They know how they want to construct their practice. And I wanted to be at a firm, and I'll give you a story, like a quick one, but I wanted to be at a firm that wasn't combative with advisors, that wasn't trying to take their business, that wasn't trying to take their pay down. I wanted to be at a firm that was trying to take their payouts up, that was trying to help them be successful, that when the advisor chose not to do business with the firm anymore, the firm looked at themselves and said, what did we do wrong and help the advisor take all of their clients with them, right? Versus firms that increasingly in our marketplace have said, we're going to retain all of the clients of an advisor when they leave. I think that's awful. I think it's actually an awful, awful strategy. I think it's bad business. Um, and so I first sat down with Dan Arnold um, and it was like a revelation to me the way this firm reveres advisors and serves them as our clients. Um, and, 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 and I hadn't been at a firm 
that felt that purity of purpose. And it was just different. And it's been different for me every single day I've been here. And it's liberating. And we don't, you know, we're not a perfect firm. But I will tell you, I can't find a, fir a firm that has a as pure a purpose as this firm. And we know where we sit in serving advisors and institutions. Yeah, you're really... <laughs> I mean, I don't want this to sound like an ad for LPL, but, you know, I, I've known you a long time, Rich. And and so, you know, I'm asking the questions and this is just how you're how you're responding. I shoot straight, Bruce. That's that's an authentic answer. OK, that, that's that's not a that's not a sales answer. OK, like lit literally, I got I don't want to talk bad about other firms, but I couldn't find a firm that wanted to serve advisors legitimately. Like that's not not that's not. That's not like, hey, Rich has this pitch that he does. Right. And I know not everybody that listens to this will know me, but I only shoot straight. That's my straight story. That's not a marketing story. That's authentic. Okay. That's it. Here, you want to know? I'll give you one quick one. And I know sure. you have things you want to get to. Sure. I joined here in August of 2018. In September of 2018, a $250 million team chose to leave us. And they went to Ameriprise. And Dan Arnold, who's the CEO of this firm, called a meeting of our management committee and said, what did we do wrong? I want to go through why we didn't serve this team right. What is it that they couldn't see in our model? Why were they not being properly supported? And that to me was unlike anything I have ever experienced because what I would have experienced um, in other places was how can we make sure they take as few of those assets as possible? None of that went on here. What went on here is let's make sure it was a female-led practice. Let's make sure that she takes all of her clients and let's make sure she has an orderly um, transition out because we did not properly earn her business. And and by the way, just fast forward, that was part of the construct is how we introduced our W-2 model, our Linsco model, because the advisor who left at the time was 62 years old, didn't want to sign another lease, wanted her staff to have the ability to continue to work after her retirement and didn't have a proper succession plan and 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 didn't see the pathway here inside of a 1099 model. Right. Um, and it like that's a legit story. That happened like one month after I joined and it was like, validating for me. I'm sorry, Bruce. I, I think you feel like I'm being a little bit too <laughs> huckster-ish. I'm really not. And like, you well, know, look, I'm not. Rich, I think anyone who has, like I said, I've covered LPL for a very long time. People know that we're, we write hard, tough stories about LPL. I think you write fair stories. Yeah. We're we're not, but I mean, you know, tough stories, L, something negative comes out about LPL. Yeah. You know, we write about it, you know? So yeah, I, I you should, you know, that's your job. It's, it's all, well and well and good, really. You should challenge me if you think what I'm saying is nonsense. Bob. I I don't because I mean I don't I don't think you're you're BSing me or blowing smoke. Yeah. Some other people <laughs> might disagree with me, but whatever. That's that's hey. you know. That's why there's all people kinds are, of different models. People are entitled to feel good and very positive about where they work. I've never felt better about where I work good. than the last four years, four and a half years I've spent here. Good. Um, so let's take it back to yeah. some of the changes that you've made there. You yeah. mentioned one, the Linsco employee advisor model. So you have that now as a recruiting and hiring strategy. And I think there was some doubt if you guys could ever get that off the ground. Could you tell us what that is and how that came about and 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 how is that different from what's gone on at LPL in the past? Yeah. So I gave you a little bit of an inkling as to how we thought about moving into that W-2 segment and that space. Um, the truth is, you know, you start looking at um, the core investments that you make at a firm, and that is in, you know, technology, workflows, compliance, supervision, 
workstations. Um, right, and just to clarify, Rich, for people, yeah. the, ca- yeah. the, the casual listener, LPL works with um, financial advisors who are overwhelmingly um, independent contractors. Correct. So they're not employees of Correct. LPL Financial. They're, LPL yeah. is, a, is a service platform for, and other things too, technology platform, but all that stuff, it, it's, it's the back office for the financial advisor in many ways. So what Rich did was introduce an employee model which is more like the traditional brokerage. If you walk into a big fancy office of Morgan Stanley or Ameriprise or somebody like that, they are quite often an employee and that financial advisor is the employee of that firm. So that is what we call our Linsco model. I would say, you know, uh, we got there because we saw this 1099. Um, uh, we do have, you know, 21,000 total advisors that are affiliated with us through some through, you know, 3,500 of them through financial institutions and um, credit unions, but the balance of them are, as you said, 1099 advisors. We have, you know, north of a hundred that are W2 advisors now. But, um, what we realized is that independence sometimes could be a step too far for certain advisors. And that's what we were hearing. Um, and so we introduced a model that says, Hey, the principles of independence should stay in place. So you own your book, high payouts, which recognize that you are the ones that are generating, you know, the returns, but, but also provided then, um, support in that, you know, you become an employee, so you get benefits, um, you get your technology, you get your, you know, your physical space that we pay for. Um, we employ your staff, right? They get benefits, et cetera. Uh, and all of this in a disruptive economic model that has payouts that range from 50 to 70% payouts. Um, no small household policy, none of this. If you do banking, and 50 to more. 70 is very much on the high end for um, an employee. Uh, Materially above the right. center of gravity of, I mean, you, you would look at um, an employee side and say, you know, those usually those start at somewhere on the low end, 25 percent and cap out maybe close towards 50 percent. Right. But then you have to keep in mind that they have these special exceptions where the first one percent doesn't go to the grid. Or if you don't grow in eight new clients, right. then you get a reduction to the grid or anything below 250,000. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, et cetera. So anyhow, um, they call. We, um, we saw that the marketplace was asking us to come forward. And as, as I said, there was an advisor that had left us. There were multiple advisors that left us that said, hey, I want you to, I want to become an employee. I want to be part of something bigger. I want you to take down my real estate. And so we worked through. And the first thing we did there was we bought a firm that we love in Lakeland, Florida called Allen and Company that had 33 financial advisors that were W-2. We learned in with them for a year. And then we launched what we call our independent employee model in the marketplace um, a year subsequent to that uh, and um, have been out there taking down real estate uh, opening offices and recruiting advisors into, you know, a W-2 model with higher payouts and they retain book ownership. And, but you know, kind of all the spoils of the W-2 model, but the rewards of owning your book and never worrying. If you decide we're not your right partner, you leave. Um, it would seem also, to me to be yeah. a good time to invest in, in leases in downtown business areas. <laughs> um, you must, I would think, because I know there's a lot of there's a lot of big firms out there, right? That are that are in the opposite position. They've had too much real estate, yeah, and they're shedding it, right? Without naming names, but there's some big ones out there who are cutting office space by 10, 20, 30 percent, right? Yeah. So it's actually, you know, it's interesting because we can get into space that's already built out. Actually, the cost of the build is often, you know, um, a, a material, con- you know, consideration in, in as you look at space. Uh, as you're, you're right. I mean, like us being short real estate is probably a good position to enter into this market in versus being long real estate. 
Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're building out really nice offices across the country. Um, and uh, Where do you have and, offices these days? So um, a lot of places. So Greensboro, North Carolina, Charlotte, Charlotte. Um, we have Dallas, um, Chicago. Um, we're building one out in Birmingham, Michigan right now. Um, we've got one in Newport, um, Newport Beach, California. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing, oh, Raleigh um, as well. And uh, I think we have like 12 to 15 offices, Bruce. Um and plans just to continue to grow that by about that amount each year, somewhere between 10 and 20 new offices a year hmm. locations. Another co- consequential thing of you coming aboard too, you've been involved in um, some uh, acquis- uh, some broker-dealer acquisitions. Yeah. Um, was so Jackson National done while you were at the firm or was that before preceded you Preceded me. That was done in 2017. I joined in August of 2018. Right. That's that's what I thought. But you were there for the Waddell and Reed. Yep. Which happened, which was closed closed last year, and then the Benning and Scattergood uh, deal, um, and then you had a deal today announced as well. So, if you want to talk about, you know, M and A with uh, brokerage firms uh, and and what you see out of that or what you've done, you know, uh, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the business. You know, everybody needs to merge at some point, but who do you merge with and how? You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Bruce, a lot of those got done for different reasons, but I would tell you, you know, it's really interesting if you think of Allen and Company, um, which right. I would consider Benning and Scattergood very similar to an Allen and Company acquisition. Um, we provided a very unique opportunity there, where those were long, um, long existing firms um, that you know for Allen had been in existence for eighty-seven years, um, hundred and seven years for Benning and Scattergood. Where they yeah, it's a real really, name in Philadelphia, right? It means a lot in Conshohocken in Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. their story is awesome. I know I've been long-winded already, so I won't go into their story. <laughs> but the Benning and Scattergood story is amazing. Just go to their website and look it up. Like, you know, founded in 1907, you know, out into, um, lost two of the principals in World War II. Just like um, really an awesome firm. Um, and in both of those instances, you know, we were one of the only firms that could step forward and say, hey, We'll do this acquisition. We'll integrate you. We'll get you onto better technology. Um, but really, we're going to allow you to retain your brand, the way you operate your business, um, what you mean in the marketplace, how you contribute to your communities, um, and you, we won't kind of whitewash you and bring you in and just say you're LPL East or LPL South or LPL North, right? And so I think those were strategic opportunities for us to advance, you know, our W two model. We both of those acquisitions brought in um, advisors under a W two construct but allowing them to retain what was great of the firm and, and really take the shine out of what's great at, at LPL. And that that's a little bit of the principle of this firm. It, it won't surprise you to see that we don't have our name plastered all over the place because we go to market through financial institutions. We go to market through advisors um, whose names mean a lot more in their local marketplace than our names mean. But I will say, you asked about M&A more broadly, you know, I think there are challenges in the marketplace for small players. You have to be able to compete at scale. And scale continues to be defined in a you know with larger and larger operational support um, and size of the firm. And so I think there will be continuing pressure in the marketplace for smaller firms to find their footing and be able to be long-term sustainable in a market that demands huge investments in technology, where the regulatory environment demands huge investments to keep pace. Right. And so it wouldn't surprise me if you saw continued consolidation in the marketplace. And I think we will, by and large, be a consolidator um, into the marketplace. You know, to the outside observer, 
you talk about M&A, and it would all sound the same, but there's such a difference, right, between broker-dealer M&A and RIA M&A. Yeah. <laughs> RIA, which is an RIA M&A has been the big craze, right, with all this private equity loot, uh, yes. buying, up, buying up all these firms and paying premiums. And we've written about that in Investment News and all the other trade pubs and et cetera, et cetera. But the RIA regime, it just has such a different, it's, it's, is it easier to get deals done there or is it tougher to do broker dealer deals? Is there, are there, is there more regulatory hurdles you got to go through, go over or around or whatever when you deal with brokerage firms or is it just more complicated, the brokerage industry or what? Well, I think, you know, not as many people run their own broker dealers anymore. There is a little bit of regulatory approval required. It right. usually extends the duration of the approval cycle. Um, when you're consolidating a BD. More often than not, though, in this environment, Bruce, if you're buying a broker-dealer, they're going to come with their own RIA usually as well. And right. so you're usually doing, and so there's maybe enhanced complexity in that you're bringing in a BD and an RIA. I think when you look at those pure RIA transactions that are in the marketplace, a lot of what's happening now is, it's interesting, it's a reverse move, if you will. Um, a lot of folks have gone out and formed their own RIAs um, and maybe at some point they did that and realized, you know, over time that maybe they were too small to stand alone. And so what's happening with a lot of those transactions is you're seeing them be bought by a larger RIA who's then shutting down that RIA and integrating them. Maybe you call that a tuck in into a broader ecosystem. Um, and so I think, yeah, are those deals a little bit less complex because you largely doesn't come with a broker dealer? Usually they, they already, either they're pure RIAs or, you know, they've got a friendly broker-dealer arrangement, probably a little less complex. Uh, but I think that the trend has probably more to do with the explosion in the creation of RIAs and some of those folks who created those RIAs realizing they probably didn't need to have an RIA to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Um, and there is an exit strategy here. And there's capital that obviously has rushed in um, to participate um, in, you know, those roll-ups. Yeah, I think the wise ones after the credit crisis left Wall Street, left a big Wall Street firm, started their own RIAs, and ten years later they're able to sell it. You know, yeah, yeah, and either be a partner or walk away and do something else. You know, and I think a lot of them are coming back to be part of something bigger, right? I mean, if you think about well, these one. these these RIAs are almost like regional broker dealers to me. You know, all these roll ups, they're like regional offices or regional firms. You know? Yeah, and, and I think and, you know, look, look, they're they're interesting, and we support some of them, and um, and in some ways we're competitive with them, right? I mean, it's interesting place right. that we walk in the marketplace. Um, yeah, I think they're they're building their own cultures, they're building their own workflows, they're building their own go-to-market strategy, and I think they are intended to mean something in the marketplace, not just be an aggregator, um, the best ones. Um, and I think they're working hard on their value propositions. And I think they're selling into a value proposition that says, hey, you're a standalone RIA, come with me. And here is a, an articulate, you know, an articulated value proposition. And I think you're right. They are starting to feel like the, you know, reassembling. <laughs> it's really funny. I think, you know, sometimes these advisors who left the, you know, wirehouses went on their own and now are, you know, um, going into something that starts to feel directionally like a larger enterprise that has elements that feel large, like the wirehouse they left. Because it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like a larger enterprise because there's like $40 billion in assets now. You <laughs> exactly. Know? exactly. And just the last thing, we're coming up on almost 30 minutes here. Yeah. Just the last thing. Could you speak about today's uh, deal and how is that, how is that similar or different to the things that you've, you've done in the past? 
And then anything yeah. else you want to add too before we wrap up? Yeah. Quick hit on today's. Um, so um, for those that didn't see, um, we bought FRG um, Financial Resources Group, who is um, have been a partner of ours um, since 2007. Um, it's a firm that serves independent um, advisors and also serves uh, banks and credit unions. Um, and uh, so today's transaction, uh, Bruce Miller, who's the principal at that firm, was you know seeking access to capital to continue to grow his firm, right. as well as seeking a succession plan um, for how to have surety to you know his his going concern to make sure that there was a clear pathway for ownership going forward. We have always had a tight partnership with FRG. Um, and so we were able to make that acquisition, form that partnership with FRG to where they'll be run as a separate enterprise. Um, we provide them that capital to continue to grow. Um, we give Bruce that, Bruce that succession plan um, that his firm will continue in a way that he wants to see it continue. Um, but it's LPL us, buying, as we discussed earlier today, yeah. buying the equity stake in the firm. It's just not a, right? So you're buying your own branch in a way. Yeah, I think that you can think of it that way. The unique part and part of the unique that's value different. proposition. That's different than what we've done in the past is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. That's the right characterization. And I would tell you that there's an element of this, Bruce, that is unique in that, um, you know, we didn't speak deeply because I don't think you and I often speak deeply about how we serve financial institutions. So banks and credit unions and large, maybe even insurance firms who have wealth management businesses for which we provide the infrastructure of the middle and back office for. Um, Bruce and his team since 2007 have been supporting um, small to mid-sized financial institutions in, in running their wealth management programs for them. For us, that is something incredibly valuable. We serve over a thousand banks and credit unions and have partnerships there. And there are things that Bruce and his team do at a local level that are really valuable to how we think about the further enhancement to our offering to our existing thousand clients. Um, and so I'm sure we don't, you know, you and I talked a little bit about that earlier, but there are some unique programs. We love the way, we love the leadership team there. We love the cultural fit. Um, and so we are supportive of exactly how they innovate locally to support independent advisors, so 1099, as well as they have really robust programs that they've built to support those financial institutions. Both of those fit like a glove with us, and we're really excited to um, be able to announce that transaction today. Well, I just think it's fascinating because I think people have been talking about a potential deal like this for LPL for months, buying one of its branches one of or more than one of its branches. And it's a way for the firm to kind of give the Heisman arm to some of the private equity guys out there who are circling. Now, that's my perception of it. Uh, Bruce Miller made very clear on our conversation this morning that, you know, he was very focused on LPL Financial as the, as the, as the firm to sell to and to partner with. Uh, that's just kind of where I perceive where not only LPL is going, but advisor groups, Cetera, and others in the future here. Yeah, Bruce, I would just, maybe I'd provide maybe a little bit of clarity. So Bruce's firm was formed out of LPL. And so um, in 2007, Bruce was an employee of LPL. He went out and formed um, FRG and built that and grew it. But we've always had a very privileged and tight relationship with FRG. And so as Bruce looked at succession planning, we were the first call that he made, and we were very receptive to that. 
I, I, I just, I, I want to make sure, like, we have deep partnerships with branches across the board. Some of them have private equity ownership. Some of them have private right. equity participation. And they're incredibly important partners of ours. Um, and we're supportive. This is just a different model where Bruce needed a succession solution. Um, and we were ready, willing, and enthusiastic to step in and support and saw a path forward in our partnership together. This is, but so I don't know about the stiff arm or the Heisman to <laughs> our existing clients and our partners. No, 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 no. I think I'm there is to, to your competition, <laughs> to the private equity uh, managers out there who who are throwing lots of cash into this business, right? Yeah, so That's I, what I'm I saying think you're giving the stiff arm to. You're, oh, okay, I got you. Like, you're, you're not, is, you're was not, there an alternative for Bruce to potentially sell yes. to private equity? Yeah, I think there. Listen, do do we have capital, and do we think that there is an appropriate deployment of that capital to look at in support of succession needs inside of our ecosystem? A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. But let let me tell you, uh, Rich. Like I said, I've been covering for the third time. I've been covering LPL. Yeah. A long time. Five years ago. Ten years ago. That wouldn't have been the case, you know? Well, five um, years ago, you would have characterized us as an IBD, and I don't think we think we're an IBD. I think we no, think that we want to... you're than you yeah. were five years ago, definitely. Yeah. You know? And I think this reflects the continued evolution of this firm, which I think is a progression to serve advisors, support them in financial institutions and support them. And this lines up against both of those. But yeah, I mean, this firm will continue to evolve. Today is, you know, maybe a... Um, part of, you know, a, a, a revolution or not revolution. What do you call it when, when something evolves and, and, and a tweak, um, you know, a continued, you have to continue to be competitive in the marketplace. You have to understand what's being sought at and, and you can't stare into the face of an aging advisor and principal population and just say, we're going to be blind to that. There are needs that exist with advisors and institutions to have capital provided to them. And we're going to step in to provide that capital because it's important to have continuity um, and be great partners. And I think we showed up today for Bruce as a great partner, and he's been a great partner of ours. I think it's a fascinating acquisition. Thanks, Mr. So Mr. Steinmeier, anything else to get off your chest or anything? No, else Bruce, I actually love I love uh, I love wrestling around with you on things. <laughs> we always have fun together. I appreciate the invite. To share, I don't think I offended you today. Sometimes I offend you when we chat. Yeah, no, actually, it's so funny because today we were prepping for. We had an interview with you earlier today, and I was prepping, and I said, "Look, sometimes Bruce can be offensive, and like he and I will get into it." I'm like, "Just don't worry. We really like each other, but we do get into it with each other. You and I did not get into it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I didn't. This stuff about you being a McKinsey guy, I think that's fascinating. I did not know that about you. (laughs) Well, I worked at Ford Motor Company too, so you cook that all together. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk more about that sometime over a beer or a cup of coffee. Sounds like a plan. Rich, thank you so much for dropping you, by Bruce. the podcast this afternoon. It was a privilege. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Rich. Welcome every Monday. It's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Of course, we want to thank our special guest once again, Rich Steinmeier from LPL. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, along with Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Jeff should be back next week if you want to uh, query him uh, anytime soon. Reach out to him on Twitter while we're all still there. 
and he can be reached uh, at uh, at Benji Ryder. My handle on Twitter is still at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. 